uh, of the faith that are in the, in the Bible and, and um, kind of talk about their lives and their great example. And, and, and so I, I'm always kind of like, who do I talk about this year? You know, and I didn't want to just default to last year, right? And uh, although I think I remember what I taught. You remember? No, I, anyway. Um, but nonetheless, um, so I thought of Mary. And, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I started reading some of the passages that, that um, talk about her. And as I was reading through Luke 1, which is where we're going to go this morning, I, what caught my eye was not Mary, but Elizabeth. And so this morning, I wanna, I wanna, we're going to probably start around verse 24. And, and look at the story of Elizabeth and, and her, uh, her incredible faithfulness. And in fact, if I were going to title this message, I would, I would title it Elizabeth's Faithfulness. You, you remember the story that earlier in the book of Luke, her husband, Zechariah, uh, was at the temple, and, and what they would do, they had so many Levites uh, that they would cast lots and different orders, different families or different groups of the Levites would come and they would offer the, the sacrifices and the incense um, throughout the year. And they, essentially they would actually cast lots to see who, who would, would be the one who would go in um, to offer sacri- uh, uh, incense. And incense is a uh, picture in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament it is a picture of what? It's prayer, and, and let our let our praise, praise or prayers rise as incense, and and so Zacharias, uh, who is Elizabeth's husband, the the lot fell on him, and so he went into the holy place. He didn't go into the holy of holies. He went into the holy place, and he offered incense. He offered prayers of the people, and when he was in there, um, he had. A visitor that he didn't expect. And Gabriel comes and he tells him that, that he is going to have a son. Now, Zacharias is an older guy at this point. He and his wife, Elizabeth, have not had children. In that culture, at that time, it was a reproach if a woman was not able to have a child. It was considered a curse. So, and if it was a curse, what does that mean? There's something wrong with you. You're a sinner. And, and yet her husband is what? A Levite. He's a priest. But the default theology or women at that time. No kids, God must not like you. Because the big thing that the Jews looked toward as far as blessing from God was not only receiving blessing from God themselves, but having a posterity. Having someone to pass that blessing on to. What was one of the promises that God gave to Abraham when, by the way, he had no children? That his descendants would be what? Greater than the stars of the skies and in the sands of the sea. 
So here we have again, we've already touched on this in Romans, God speaking those things that are not as though they are. Zacharias, he's offering incense. He's told that his wife, who is barren and also beyond the child-bearing uh, years, is going to have a baby. And what happens? He doesn't really believe it, and he begins to question it. And so as a sign, what happens? He is unable to speak. He, he's coming out of the temple after he's offered incense, and he was in there for a long time, it tells us. Verse 22 says that when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he repeatedly made signs to them and remained speechless. And when the days of his priestly service were concluded, he went back home. Okay. So he goes home. And he probably had to write a really long letter to his wife because he can't speak to share with her his vision, what had happened. And it tells us in verse 24 of Luke chapter 1, Now after these days, his, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among the people. So we're going to, I'm not going to read this through, but I'm going to pick out some verses. and 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 I want to just highlight to all of us this morning this incredible faith of this woman who had been faithful to God for so long. The scripture does not tell us. But I'm, I'm almost willing to bet the farm that her and Zechariah had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a child in their earlier years. And finally, as she got older, she resolved in her heart that this was just what God had for her. But in doing so, it also meant she had, we already see it here in the passage, she had to live with the disgrace among the people. So she secludes herself, and then she, I I love this prayer in verse 25. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me. Now, She refers to him as the Lord. That's important because I'm going to go back to this verse toward the end of this message. Okay, so we don't want to forget how she addresses God. The Lord, Greek word kyrios, was a proper title. Not a proper name, but a proper title that in that day they referred to God as. Of course, we do the same thing today, do we not? So we, his, his title also kind of uh, then assumes his name. And she realizes that the, the Lord, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in these days. To take away my disgrace among the people. Now we don't know how old she was.
She might have been older than anybody in this room. We don't, we don't really know, and yet she had lived her entire adult married life with disgrace. And it is so often it is that God calls the weak things of the world and breathes the breath of his spirit into them and creates strength out of them. And what I, what I love about this in, in her prayer is that she recognized that God had blessed her, that this was God's blessing, that this was the way that the Lord had decided to take away her disgrace, and it was a blessing. What I don't see in this text is her saying, Lord, it's about time. Lord, finally, because I've been good to you. You ever had these kind of prayers? I've been good to you. I've followed you. And you've been good to me, except this area in my life. And she recognized that the hand of God in her, li- in her life was an unexpected blessing. And she does not hold God responsible for her reproach. Everybody else did. And that's what's interesting about this. Everybody else did. Because the disgrace was not so much that she did not have children. The disgrace was she was probably a bad person, and that's why God had closed her womb. So there's got to be something in there, Elizabeth, that you're doing that you're not confessing. Probably didn't get invited to a whole lot of women's teas, but I don't think they were a whole lot of women's teas. in first century Judea, but anyway. She holds, does not hold God responsible for her approach. She does not hold God responsible for a false belief that God had somehow found her in disfavor, but she praises God nonetheless for the deliverance. Sometimes I think we try to figure too much stuff out and then we drift into error. Well, why did this happen? There, do you have things in your, I, and I would imagine you do, so I'm asking you a rhetorical question. Do you have things in your life that you have never been able to figure out why it's happened? Most of you have, probably all of you. And I know that in some instances, particularly when the wound was still fresh, boy, I wanted to figure it out. Boy, I wanted to figure it out. Because I want to redeem it. Does God want to redeem it? Yes. Those wounds that you have, that you have no reason, no understanding, no you, have, you don't have a reason why it has happened to you. Yes, God wants to redeem it. But often it is that he will probably redeem it in ways that we never imagine.
and she saw God as her deliverer. She saw God as her deliverer. Try to say that four times, right? Rather than some deity who imposes some harshness upon her. In other words, she recognizes in this incredible act of, of a miracle taking place in her physical body that it is, it, is, it is an act of God's grace. It is an act of God's mercy. But it is also a fulfillment of God's plan. And, 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 and be, because if, and I haven't said this already, but I, I, I'm sure you all know this, Elizabeth is the mother of whom? John the Baptist. And the ministry of John the Baptist that was absolutely necessary because God deemed it so to be the forerunner, to come in the spirit of Elijah. And, and he comes on the scene in, in this incredible, miraculous way. She finds out that she's pregnant. John the Baptist is a Nazarite from conception. In other words, he is dedicated to God from conception. No more Passover wine for Elizabeth, at least for the next nine months. Because that was part of the Nazarite vow. She does not hold God responsible for the harshness of her existence, which was a part of her calling. Think about this. Did God, what, did, what, God didn't just arbitrarily, okay, well, Zachariah's here. His wife doesn't have, have, have baby. Uh, they're both old. Let's do a miracle here. God had foreordained this in her life. And she submitted to God's plan for her life, even though it probably was not something that she would have signed up for had she known what it was going to cost her. Interpreting now her pregnancy because of a gracious act of God. And, and she says in verse 25 again, I'm still there. I'm probably going to spend most of my time in this verse. God has dealt with me in these days when he looked with favor on me. That's an interesting word uh, in the Greek where the, this word looked, where God looked with favor. Um, it's a variation or a variation of this word is the word to visit. And it, it's, it's referring to God actually having a visitation upon her. Think about that, and particularly when, when you think about the uh, triumphal entry where they did not recognize the time of their, what, visitation. She recognized that God had visited, that God had come upon her and done this special work. Now, don't get confused. This is not an immaculate conception like Mary. All right, you, you understand this, right? Um, but she was given a supernatural ability to have children through the natural means 
even in her older, old age, when she had been barren all of her life. And what other people considered to be a curse, what her culture considered to be a curse, was actually a part of God's preparatory work for her life. See, Hebrews talks about Jesus suffering outside the gate. Not in the city, but suffering outside the gate. And, and that God is doing that work in our redemption by Jesus not suffering in the midst of the people but being cast out of the gate. It's the same idea here where, where Elizabeth uh, is doing her suffering in a sense and relating to the Messiah because much of her life was spent outside the gate. She was that woman who had no kids. And that was her identity in her culture. Psalm 113 verse 9 says, Has the infertile woman lived in the house as a joyful mother of children? Praise the Lord. It's an incredible question that's being asked. And, and as God is saying that even though we live through these particular times of difficulty and things that we do not understand and limitations that we wish we did not have, one of these days God will do a complete work of redemption in our life. We have been redeemed, we are being redeemed, and we will be redeemed. Just like we have been saved, we are saved, and we will be saved. So it is this incredible work of redemption that is continuing to take place and it is another natural pattern by which God deals with his people. Not all of them. But in some way, some shape, some form, all of us, I think, experience some form of barrenness in some aspect in our lives. And that we hope and that we pray and we wait for God to open that barrenness out of our own lives. And so she goes into seclusion. She goes into seclusion for five months, back into verse 24. I find this fascinating. Why did she go into seclusion? I'm going to speculate. That's the best I can do. Because I can't answer the question completely, emphatically, because the Bible does not tell us that. But I'll give you some guesses. Why did she go hiding, right? I think, first of all, to perhaps to avoid further reproach from the neighbors, from her Christian buddies, as she began to show, even. Of course, the first five months, I don't know. I've never been pregnant, never plan on being, okay? Right? First five months, you don't show a whole lot anyway, right? Right? Okay. Still? No? Kinda? Kinda. Okay. And, no, I was going to ask. Any other ladies want to weigh in? But anyway. Um, she probably did not want to bear the reproach even more. Because if now you're finally pregnant, now what's wrong with him? And if you're finally pregnant, what's wrong with him? But then, what have you been doing? See, we, we jump to horrible conclusions about each other, don't we? 
Now, it's not every day that God does this. I understand this, all right? It wasn't that way then. It isn't that way now. But I, I think it could have been that, that she was looking to avoid further reproach. When she shows up and the baby in, their arm, in her arms, then, then what are they going to say, you know? And sometimes there are those times that we have to withdraw a little bit, I think. And, and it is very possible that she withdrew even because of her age. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like in, for, for women to carry a child in their older age. And just because God had opened her womb doesn't mean it was an easy pregnancy, all right? I don't know. But I think it very well could have been that she took that time to really engage in some grateful prayer. She took that time to engage in some really grateful prayer because there are times, I think there, I don't know how I'm going to say this without miscommunicating it. I think there are times in our life that God calls us to solitude. Sometimes it's over a prolonged season. Sometimes it's for a few moments each day. But I think God does call us to solitude. I think God, God does call us to be in a place before him with just he and I or him and you. And, and call, what I'm describing is, is I, I see that God is calling her into her prayer closet, whatever that might be. God is calling her to come and spend time with him by herself. And I, and I think also, too, that there are times that, There are times that I think God reveals things to us and really doesn't really want us sharing it with everybody. I know some people that they've got to share every inkling that they believe God told them all the time. And it makes them look actually unstable, in my opinion. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, Paul tells us. Sometimes when God reveals, sometimes those revelations that God gives us are really just for us. And often I think it is, maybe not often, I can't quantify, that's, that's not a good statement. But there are times I think we just want to go out and tell everybody because we want to look more spiritual. And as I've shared with you in the past, there's two things about us that are true. We, do, we are not as spiritual as we think we are and we are not as spiritual as everybody else thinks we are. But that doesn't matter because still God loves us. But there, there are times that, that God is wanting to do a, a, a deeper work in us and he wants to do it in the dark. We see this with Paul's conversion and I'm not going to go into the details of it but he gets saved and uh, he leaves Damascus and it's, it's uh, possible that he spent about three years in the desert before the Lord in, in Arabia. And then he goes to Jerusalem and all he does is make a mess. He, ba he sows discord and, and he creates havoc. And it tells us in the book of Acts that they, they shipped him off to Tarsus and then there was peace in the churches. 
And get, I, I, it doesn't exactly say why, but, but he, he, his presence was a problem. And he's out in a season of silence for probably seven to eight years, and then Barnabas goes and brings him back to Antioch. And it was in that time period where God really began to season him, and we see this even in the narrative of the book of Acts, where it says he no longer disputes with the people, but now he begins to reason with them concerning the scriptures. When he was in Jerusalem, he was disputing with the people and therefore just creating problems. He spent time alone with God and God seasoned him and God mellowed him and God really developed in him Christ-like character. I think thirdly, this is a woman who's really committed to her husband. And her, her solitude, I think, was a form of solidarity with her husband. What's going on with Zacharias at this point? He's writing lots of notes because he can't speak. So he can't really share a whole lot about his experience when he was in the temple. And I think she was joining in in, sol in solidarity with him, in union with him, being the helpmate that she was called to be to him in just being silent for a while. Not spreading this incredible news of what God uh, had done in their lives. When Gabriel comes to Mary and tells Mary, we, we read it before communion, and tells Mary that you're going to have a son, the son Jesus. He also told her in verse 36 of chapter 1 in the book of Luke, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Boy, that's a, that's a heavy verse. I mean, we like to read that and keep going sometimes. And we, but I think, bless you, I think sometimes we just need to read that and stop. Nothing is impossible with God. Boy, talk about stretching your faith. Now, apply that. Maybe we are going to stop on this for a second. I was tempted to keep going, even though I... But, Apply that into your own life, into your own situation. Nothing is impossible with God. It's just a matter of waiting. And not waiting around Waiting for it to happen, waiting for it to happen, waiting for it to happen, tapping your foot, getting annoyed, getting anxious or depressed. But it's a type of waiting that I think we are called into where we bloom, where we're planted. And that we occupy he comes. I think that's, that's part of what Jesus is talking about here when he tells us, do business until I come. 
I know some people that, and, and they believe so strongly in the second coming and they believe it's going to happen in their lifetime. All they do is hold their breath. It's not what God called us to do. We're to occupy, do business. Because nothing is impossible with God. So Mary, for some reason... She decides to go visit Elizabeth. She's already pregnant too, you know, but uh, in her early months. And it tells us in verse 39, now at that time Mary set out and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. See, she's been told that her relative, Elizabeth, is going to have the forerunner. So she greets her relative, Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, notice the wording here, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth heard it, who leaped? John. Boy, it, it, if this isn't another verse that talks, that really, I think, supports the idea of life beginning at conception, I don't know what does. Although she's six months along. And while Mar Elizabeth had been in seclusion, she was also willing to take input from others, including her unborn son. Now, I don't know what that would be like to have a six-month-old child jumping around in your womb. I have no idea what that would feel like. I've felt it from the outside. But the baby is leaping in her womb because of the presence of the Messiah in the womb of Mary. And she picks up, Elizabeth picks up on what's going on. And, and she understands what's happening. And, and it, it, it tells us that she is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cries out, blessed are you to Mary. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the Messiah. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. The mother of my Lord? Remember I told you that we're going to go back to verse 25? Now, now this is where we're going to do it. Elizabeth refers to Mary as the mother of Jesus. The mother of my Lord. In first century Judea, the phrase Lord, kurios again, same word, was used to identify and was a title for God. Remember what I've told you about the Septuagint, which was the, the common Bible of that day, the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek whenever the proper name of God was used in the 
Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greeks who translated did not translate God's proper name, Yahweh, but they translated the word Yahweh instead to the Greek word Kyrios, Lord. So they, that, that was the title that was given for God. So what is she saying here? How has it happened to me that the mother of God would come to me? That's what she's really saying here. See, the Eastern Church, they have a term for Mary. It's called the Theotokos or the Theotokos, depending on how you want to mispronounce the Greek, okay? And the term for her is the mother of God. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that name or that title for Mary. They think it's exalting Mary. And to a degree, yes, it is. But she is the mother of whom? God. It is a recognition of the incarnation. And that was the real thrust behind that title given to Mary, the mother of God, because it recognized that God has come in the flesh. If someone comes in the flesh, they have to have a, think somebody said it, a mother. You got to have a mother if you've come in the flesh. And that title of Mary is really an exaltation of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ and is recognizing that God has come in the flesh. Okay, finally some of you are starting to get be more comfortable with this. I can see it on your faces, okay? What's interesting, she's filled with the Spirit when she says this. What's interesting, too, is that she recognizes this is the Messiah, God, who's come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, because she knew the Bible. She was married to a Levite, who knew the Bible. She knew the scriptures. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. This word uh, is a little different. It's, it's the word, and I'm going to botch it, but I'll just try to pronounce it for you anyway. Eplesthe. Eplesthe. Sometimes in Greek you've got to do weird things with your mouth that mine doesn't want to cooperate. But anyway, and it's, it's an interesting word because it's used in the book of Acts uh, several times. And it, it, it's, it's used in two different types of situations. Follow me on this. Two different types of situations where someone is filled with the Spirit. One, when they are sitting and waiting in expectation for God to move. Acts chapter 2 is used. When they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is also used, second of all, of Peter and of Paul when they begin to preach the gospel message. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and they, are to be, uh, they are sharing or prophesying that is the, the foretelling of God's word. Not the foretelling, but the foretelling of God's word when they are defending the faith with others. That, so it's, it's a unique word that is used in those two situations where they are testifying of the nature of Jesus. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? See, 
in that question, humanity and deity are brought right together. Humanity and deity are brought right together. Again, this woman knows her Hebrew scriptures. I'm convinced. So she has the baby. I'm almost done. She has John. Her husband still can't speak. And it tells us in verse 59, now it happened on the eighth day, that is the eighth day of John the Baptist's life, when they came to circumcise the child that they were going to call him Zechariah after his father, which was common during that time. They being all the relatives, they being all the neighbors, they being the other priests. Remember, Zechariah can't speak yet. These are the same people who has believed for years and years and years and years and years that Elizabeth is someone who uh, God maybe doesn't like a whole lot. And they are trying to exert possibly their misguided spiritual authority over her. Yes, you need to name your son Zachariah after his father. Gabriel had told Zacharias, uh, that he will be named whom? What? John. And in verse 60, it says that, yet his mother, Elizabeth, responded and said, no, indeed, he will be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who was called by this name. Typical Jewish busybodies, okay? I'm part Jewish, so I can say that, all right? Typical Jewish busybodies, you know. And then they finally made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. They were going to completely shove Elizabeth to the margins yet again, which is what they had done her entire adult life. She's holding her ground. But they're like, I don't care. You're just the woman anyway. Just, we'll talk to your husband. And, of course, I love this because Zachariah can't speak, so he's got to get a tablet. And it's not a tablet like this, but anyway, he has to get a tablet, and he writes on it, his name will be John. And then immediately, what happens? They're all amazed. His mouth was open, his tongue is freed, and he begins to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these matters were being talked about in the entire hill country of Judea. You know that woman Elizabeth that we used to talk about? She had a kid. Her husband couldn't speak. And they're going to name him John. Fear came upon them. Wonder came upon them, no doubt. Why? Because here is God doing something in their midst that they cannot totally explain. And they can't chapter and verse it. But nonetheless, they have the living proof in front of them in the form of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner 
because a woman named Elizabeth was willing to be faithful to God even in the midst of a reproach that was unjustly brought upon her by the people. And even after she had John, they didn't want to leave her alone. That's what I find fascinating about this. But she was faithful. And she gave us a faithful example of what it means to walk with God in the midst of reproach, particularly a reproach that was unjustified. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Elizabeth and how you chose her and set her aside for this incredible purpose of being the mother of John the Baptist. And Lord, we, we see the influence of her in his ministry, in his willingness to go outside the gate, and in his faithfulness to a calling that was very different from the conventions of that day. We ask, Lord, again that you would bless each of our mothers here this morning and continue to do a work in them and through them and continue to build them up in our most holy faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.